Hello, everybody. This is Trace Crow. Welcome to another episode of the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Uh, today, we're joined by uh, Shane Simonson and oh shit, sorry guys. What's your last name, Simon? Gooder. Gooder. Yeah, Simon Gooder. You can tell I really did my research for this episode, guys. <laughs> um, I'm jumping back into it. I have not done an episode in like six months, and this is my first one back. So, um, all right, we'll get started again. Hello, everybody. This is Trace Crow. Welcome to another episode of the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Today, we are joined by Shane Simonson and Simon Gooder. Um, Simon, you've been on the podcast before, but why don't you uh, just kind of reintroduce the audience to you, and uh, and then we'll introduce uh, Shane. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm kind of a wannabe micro-homesteader based out of Quebec, um, a bit of a Doomer optimist uh, as far as my ideology goes. Um, I like to grow food, got a couple gardens going. Uh, I've experimented with ducks in the past. I like uh, like agroecology, um, low input gardening wherever possible. And I like to learn out about permaculture. Um, also run uh, an open data database for plants called Perma People. Excellent. Um, all right, Shane, you're up. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you're doing? Um, Shane is an experimental farmer and an author, um, so I'd love to hear about both sides of that. So take it yeah, away. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, for the first part of that, I'm an experimental farmer from subtropical Australia, and I've been doing that full time for about six years now um, since I managed to escape the rat race and get up here. So I, I blog about my experiences at zeroinputagriculture.com. And uh, the primary philosophy of what I'm doing is to find crops and livestock systems that can be reliably productive without any ongoing inputs. So, for example, with my crop growing, uh, I don't do any irrigation and I do no pest control and I only use fertilizer uh, fertility amendments that are produced on the farm. So it's been a long process of trialing every single crop that I can get my hands on. Uh, and different genetic strains of that and seeing what actually wants to grow under the conditions that I already have, rather than trying to change the world to suit the crops that I think I'm supposed to be growing. So that's been a rather interesting process. And the other side of that, uh, of my life at the moment, is uh, writing science fiction. So uh, for years, I've wanted to read a, a science fiction set in a, a hard sci-fi future post-industrial so you know apocalypses get boring after a while what happens afterwards and I wanted to explore a society built purely on biological technology so there's a lot of books like that have you know genetic engineering and fancy labs and it's it's mixed in with spaceships and all these things that as you become a realist about the resource base that we have here on earth it's like that's not going to happen uh we we can stop dreaming about Star Trek right now <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah. biology, I think, has a lot of untapped potential in its pure form. And you only have to look at the work of uh, like self-taught scientists like Luther Burbank, uh, which a lot of people don't know about what he did. He proved like there's so much potential to play around with bi biotechnology, to, to do uh, crop breeding and to bring out all sorts of potentials that have been overlooked up to this point. Yeah. What do you what talk a little bit about that about by the potential of of kind of using biology to move things forward? Mm. Um, so a, a place that people can look back to for more detail. I did a post called Biological Alchemy, 
And it basically outlined all of the low-tech approaches that anybody today can pick up to start manipulating living things. So the primary one is hybridization. So if you look at the history of pretty much any crop in, in the human repertoire, it originated as a hybrid of wild species. And this isn't something that takes thousands of years. So in my local area are macadamia species. There's four wild species of macadamia. And one collector randomly grew two of them side by side and they hybridized. And within their lifetime, you within one person's lifetime, you have a multi-million dollar macadamia industry that springs from that chance hybridization. And even humans, we're hybrids. We, we mix with Neanderthals and Denisovans and all sorts of other things that we probably haven't figured out along the way. Um, and that's the kind of thing that anybody can do today. You can get uh, bring together different species that are compatible and hybridize them. And then from that initial you know, amplified diversity, select out something that suits your local conditions and your needs as a human being. Mm. Um how how calculated or specific are you when you're when you're choosing plants to breed together are you throwing them uh, as many seeds as you can together <laughs> like land race style or like yeah i i'm a big fan of um uh, joseph lofthouse uh bringing back mm -hmm. uh, modern land race farming and i i've seen it within the short time that i've been here i've already seen it start to happen the the potential um, the amazing changes that you get in vigor in a species if you start with something that is at least semi viable you, you make life a lot easier for yourself. So if you were like trying to be breed mangoes to grow in Alaska, that's going to be a really, right. really long project. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So you need being able to just get the ball rolling is, is the most important part. Um, a, a good example okay. of this I've just started recently in South Africa, there's an onion relative called society garlic, which a lot of permaculture and people grow in the subtropics. You see it planted in um, the most common species planted in like, um, uh, roundabouts and like you know public gardens because it's so hardy in our local conditions and you can eat the leaves they're kind of like garlic chives maybe a little bit more acrid um but the genus has like 20 species in it and some of them have more history wow. of being used in south africa for edible purposes and they all hybridize with each other so i've gathered together some of the species that people have grown as like you know collectible ornamentals and i've started hand pollinating and i've got my first seedlings coming up now and it's it's really just to um, fill another niche in my uh, eco agronomic ecosystem because um, I have a, a really good strain of shallots, uh, spring onions. Everyone calls them different things in different countries mm -hmm. um, that are incredibly vigorous now that I've hybridized them and selected them for a few years. Uh, but they're still a, a long-lived annual, kind of a short-lived perennial. The society garlic would be a genuine long-lived perennial that um, even when we go through our drought periods, which we get every decade or so, they just keep producing. Oh, wonderful. Mm. Yeah, tell me, how you, how did you get into this? Uh, so as a child, I was a biology nerd. So I grew all sorts of weird plants and um, I, I was lucky enough to live on the edge of suburbia. So I kept mantises and octopi and all sorts of crazy things as pets. Um, I went into research science, uh, ended up doing chemistry, uh, since it's a bit more employable than pure biology, which, you know, it paid off in terms of opportunities, but eventually decided I wanted to run away from academia, particularly around the GFC, uh, was the time I started really looking at the world and trying to decide, like, you have to pick your time in history for your choices. There, there are no universal good decisions and what worked for the previous generation often stops working like 20 years later. 
And yeah, I couldn't see myself lasting long-term in academia. So I jumped rather than waiting to be pushed. Um, and then I, I started moving towards uh, getting this experimental farm going as, a, as an alternative. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I have a, a long background of playing around with biology and a, a couple of tricks that I picked up in the lab that help. But all of the stuff I do on the farm here is very, very simple, very hands-on. And I, I would encourage anyone who's interested and has a little bit of time and space to consider doing some experimental crop breeding. Mm. Mm. How long, so how long have you had the farm? Uh, it's now about 12 years, but the first six years of that, we were paying it off working in the city and coming up on the weekends to move the cows around. Yeah. Uh, but we've got goats now. Ooh, goats. Lovely. Mm. Nice. Do you have uh, what? So you have ducks, right, Simon? You said you, you're working on ducks right now. Uh, I used to at my oh. previous place. Uh, I'm pretty fresh at this spot now. So working my way up again. All right. Excellent. Um, so what are, what are, what are you really like excited about right now, Shane? Like what is the latest like kind of crop you've been working on? And it's either about ready to pop where you're like about <laughs> ready to get where you want to go or you're just starting and you're super excited about it. Uh, so the crop I've been working on the longest that I think is the most, has the most potential to be a staple crop for this region uh, is Canna edulis or sometimes called Queensland arrowroot uh, or Chira. Okay. It originally came from the lowlands of Peru and it's perfect for Australia because it comes from seasonal swamps that occasionally dry out and catch fire. So like this thing is amazing. It gets big starchy tubers on it and you can drown it. You can set it on fire and it just keeps growing, um, which is perfect for our climate. To, to give you an idea of what we have to put up with here in Australia, we're trapped between two temperamental oceans that like constantly change their moods and a monsoon that fails half the time. Mm -hmm. So about six years ago, we were going through a dry spell. We had nine months with no rain. The first day of spring hit 40 degrees and cooked every goose egg. Like we had no goslings that year and there was ash falling from the sky and paralysis ticks crawling everywhere. So mm, flash wow. forward to last summer and we had nine months of nonstop mud, the peak of which we got one meter of rain in three days. And wow. um, yeah, so um, when I'm a big advocate of staple crops, like if you've only got a small amount of space, grow vegetables, like and get that freshness premium that industrial systems can't deliver. But in the long run, we're going to have to come up with locally adapted mm -hmm. staple crop land races that can actually support a whole diet. And it's not something to panic right. about, but I think it's going to take multiple generations to get the systems really solid. Um, so I developed a parrot resistant strain of maize, like white flower corn, and I was really lucky to get the starting genetics. Um, and we've got clouds and clouds of parrots here that just rip every grain apart that I've ever tried to grow. But I managed to breed a, grain, uh, a strain of maize that can stand up to them and you still get a crop. But the problem is you need moisture when you sow them and you need relatively dry weather when you harvest. And we only get that maybe 50% of these seasons. And that's not reliable enough to build a society on. Um, if you look back at traditional yeah. societies, um, they usually had a crop failure about one in every five years, and they'd get through those years with the stored grain from the previous year. And, you know, the system would it'd get a bit stressed, but they, they'd move on. If you had two crop failures in a row, that's when you had a proper famine. Uh, one of the reasons Australia probably never developed complex agricultural civilization is we have these really erratic climates year to year. If you look at the average, it looks lovely. It's like, you know, we should be rolling in food. But then you swing back and forth between being extremely wet and extremely dry about every 10 years. Um, so 
this canner crop is something that could potentially get around that because you can set up stands of it, um, like you can establish it during the good times. It persists during the dry times. But even better than that, unlike most other root crops, it's actually a starch crop. So you grind up the tubers and these really large starch grains separate out really easily and dry even when the weather's wet. And that dried down starch is even easier to store than grains. As long as you keep it dry, you can store it pretty much indefinitely. Whereas in our humid climate, even if you're careful with like dried maize, after a couple of years, it starts to, to deteriorate. The, the insects and the mold get into it and it's just not particularly healthy to eat. Not, not like it's, a, it's only a carbohydrate, really. Like you need other elements to make a full yeah. diet. But mm -hmm. if you don't have energy, if you don't have you know, that, that calorie to fall back on, then the system isn't going to hold up in the long run. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Um, mm. Do you subscribe to any sort of specific methodologies when you're working with this stuff, like systems on your farm and stuff like that? Uh, it's funny. Probably the closest I come to is Fukuoka. And, okay. and it's funny. If you read his work really closely, he warns people, don't imitate what I'm doing. This isn't a recipe of of what to do it's a process that you have to adapt to local conditions and you have to explore what's actually possible in your territory um, even one of his own students tried to repeat his model of rice farming in another part of japan and it completely failed um the, the tricks that worked for fukuoka on his particular blocks didn't work like a few hundred kilometers away um so yeah i'm, I'm very much of the same uh, cast that you have to go right back to basic principles and be prepared mm -hmm. to spend a few years planting everything you can get your hands on and 90% of it dying. And that's okay. Like you'd rather yeah. know that it's going to die sooner rather than later so that you can focus exactly. on the things that do want to grow. How do you know what works? Yeah. 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 That's it. Um, and yeah, until you pull out all of the supports, you won't know. Um, and until you get through like 20 years of all of the fluctuations that your climate typically throws at you in a generation, you can't really be sure as well. Like I've had crops that I had a spectacular crop the first couple of years, and then our local finches figured out how to eat them and I never got another grain off them. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we've got unique challenges here with all of the wildlife that's roaming around. Um, even high cyanide varieties of cassava, which would, should be another potential crop to grow here, our bandicoots love them. Like you could probably pour extra cyanide down these things' throats and they would just gobble it up. <laughs> So how much land do you have? How, how much are you working? Uh, we have 40 acres, mm -hmm. which is mostly low hills. And it's uh, the mineral cycle has been uh, damaged. Uh, this was originally forested country. And the reason why the town exists is because they had sawmills cutting down all these huge old growth trees. And the second the sawmill closed down, they pulled up all of the buildings and dragged them up the road to where there's like a, a gold mining town. And so we're pretty much a ghost town. We, we have been for the last uh, probably... 70 years and it's slowly turning into suburbia because we're like an hour and a bit away from our capital city uh hopefully that trend is going to turn around soon uh, australia's housing bubble is meant to be the, one of the worst ever recorded mm. in history it's just crazy absolutely crazy um but yeah most of that is covered uh, is low hills that you can't really farm anything on you can't grow crops but i am trying to develop staple tree crops as well so we have a local tree called the bunya nut which i'm not sure you ha have heard okay. of um, so it's it's a, a very old kind of uh, pine tree that gets these spine-covered cones the size of basketballs filled with nuts, uh, starchy nuts like chestnuts. So um, 
I hesitated getting into working with the species because it's like, it's got a fairly slow generation time. It takes like 15, 20 years to mature from seed. But then I looked at how much space I have where I could plant them, how close I am to all the remnant genetics of them and how much time I've got left in my life. Like I'm in my forties. So if, if a bunya nut cone doesn't land on my head and kill me, um, I've probably got enough time to get at least one generation done. So over like 80% of the property I've planted bunya nuts that I've collected from remnant trees all, all around the area. Um, even like in the far north of our state, there, there's a remnant population of them as well. They're extremely adaptable uh, plants. Um, but the key, remember I said about hybridization being the, the the pathway to domestication. So I'm like, what can I hybridize these things with? So I looked around, looked around, and it turns out there's a relative from South America in like Southern Brazil and Uruguay called the piranha pine. Um, so they were connected to our populations when Gondwana land was all joined together. And uh, based on reports from collectors who like go crazy over weird pine trees, it, they do hybridize with bunya nuts. So alongside this hyper-diverse population of bunya nuts, I've got piranha pines starting to grow as well. But the beauty is, this is the final clincher, piranha pines have separate male and female trees. So when they start to mature, I'm going to kill all of the male piranha pines so that the females left over have to cross with the bunya nuts. So when I'm, you know, late 60s, early 70s, if I'm still going, the plan is to send those hybrid seeds all over the world because they'll grow anywhere that doesn't get really hard frosts. Places that do get hard frosts can hybridize with a Chilean relative that like gets snow on it. And this is a, a tree that's compatible with livestock. Um, once you get them past the juvenile stage, you can have cows and sheep and everything around them and they'll continue to produce uh, a substantial amount of carbohydrates every year. That's really interesting. Oh, that's super cool. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that's probably my craziest project. Um, the Canna project, I think, will yield results sooner because um, I've just managed to put together, um, I think, the core of the genetics from a few different collectors around the world. Um, I've done my primary hybrids and they're producing good tubers. Um, the main thing I have to do with them is not just select for tuber size. I have to do um, simple assays to figure out how much starch is actually in the tubers. Otherwise, I could trick myself into thinking, oh, I've got like 100 kilograms of tubers per plant, but there's actually nothing in it that's useful. The, the, the plants will do what you ask them to do, but it's like a three, it's like a genie. Like if you don't word your wish really carefully, you might not get what you expect. Mm-hmm. So how many experiments are you like running simultaneously? Uh, well, that's an interesting question because the first few years, it was just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And I reached, after about five years of that, I reached a kind of stage of burnout that luckily coincided with those enormous floods. So I put all my seeds in storage. I kept the goats going because they would be really hard to start again. And I just took some time off. Um, and the beauty of the zero input approach is that all of those trees that I'd planted, they didn't need anything from me. Like they just kept doing their thing. Um, the goats just needed to be milked and, and given a, a branch occasionally. Um, and the seeds were waiting to go again when the weather improved. So, um, but yeah, after that phase, I looked at particularly all the vegetables I was growing. I had too much complexity on the, on the go at once. So I, I did a tier list. I like ranked them all based on 
you know, what the return on the investment was, how vigorous, how reliable, how much I actually liked eating them. Um, I think a lot of permaculture vegetables fall into the, oh, I, I grow this because someone else told me that it's edible, but I've never actually gotten around to eating it kind yeah, of thing. Or the leaves are um, hairy or something. Yeah. 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 There's just something unpleasant <laughs> about it that you haven't figured out. Like you don't want to ruin dinner by adding a handful of it because everyone will complain. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it, that kind of cultural adaptation to match the crops takes time as well. Yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah, I've, I've ne massively narrowed down my vegetable diversity to probably a dozen varieties, which you think about it, that's like six in the warm season, six in the cool season. That, that's more than enough. Um, and yeah. some things like carrots that I'd started doing land race breeding with, um, and they were doing remarkably well considering I have this horrible cracking clay in a subtropical climate, like carrots should hate growing here. And I was getting a crop, but for the amount of work that went into it versus like buying carrots for a dollar a bag there was no mm. point wasting my energy on that mm. so yeah I, I i slimmed down my vegetable complexity to leave more breathing room for my stable crop work which had kind of uh it, it wasn't getting the full attention it deserved mm. you can have too much diversity you... <laughs> yeah sure you go simon are you doing any yeah are you doing any uh livestock breeding um so the goats would be the main thing at the moment and for them, I started with the best uh, milking lines, Sarnan goats. We've got the best Sarnans okay. in Australia, in the world, apparently. And I got the best milking lines that I could from like someone who wins all the ribbons. The only problem was they kept their animals in stalls and fed them grain and hay and kept them alive with medicine. So okay. it was a difficult process adapting them to live completely off fodder that I grew. Um, the only supplement right. they get at the moment is a lick block because uh, they need a bit of extra sodium, particularly the males. Um, interestingly, with the goats, I just started doing rotational grazing with them, like moving them every few days. And the amount of the lick that they're eating has dropped dramatically. So I think it's helping the mineral cycles function better. Mm. Um, and I was oh, originally cool. looking at doing some crossbreeding with them. Uh, Nigerian dwarf genetics was just starting to appear in Australia. And living in the subtropics, uh, parasites can be a, real, a real problem with goats here. Um, but I found the salmons to be just so wonderful that I'm like, I don't need to reinvent every single wheel that I'm working with. Again, like okay. you, 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 um, you have to uh, be aware of the limited amount of time and resources you have. Um, I was also working with geese recently, and I wanted to hybridize Chinese geese with European geese. Um, the European geese did really well here. Like they're a poultry that if you've got the space for them, they need practically no supplementary feeding. Um, the Chinese geese are a bit more like ducks in that they're, they're selected for eating like kitchen scraps and leftover rice. They always struggled. So I engineered the population to force them to hybridize because they were mostly sticking to themselves. And then I got to the second generation of those hybrids and they were terrible. Like they just dropped dead one after another. So I got rid oh, of really? all of them and I'm going to start again with the European geese one day because they're just big and, okay. and mean and hardy. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, 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 yeah, start. with livestock, it, it's a much bigger project. Um, right. And, and it's funny talking about hybridization. There's one final project that I would love to be able to do. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for talking about this. So um, chickens were originally a hybrid. Um, there's different species of wild jungle fowl that were mixed together to like make the founding population for chickens, but they've been inbred and bottlenecked so severely and they get every disease under the sun. Like they're, they're one of the worst 
uh, livestock in terms of genetics. Um, even if you go back like a hundred years, there was already inbred at that point. So I was looking at them thinking, is there a way to inject some like hybrid vigor back into them um, without, like, some people go right back to the jungle fowl and you end up with something that wants to scratch your eyes out. So I'm like, am I right. really signing up for that? <laughs> so I fished around. There's a local native bird called the brush turkey. And about in the 90s, a retired poultry breeder crossed them with chickens. And these things are in the megapodes, like they're more closely related to emus than they are to chickens. But the hybrids were not only um, like viable, they were fertile. Like often you do those really wild crosses and you get something like a mule, like the genes don't line up mm -hmm. and it's just a dead end. These things were fertile and they grew really fast. They were easy to handle. Um, they laid like crazy. Um, this guy got old and had to like retire and gave the stock to other poultry breeders who nobody knows what happened to it. Like they, somebody lost interest in it at the, at the wrong time and they've disappeared. I would love to see that project repeated, um, potentially to create a poultry, an egg laying poultry that's more like the turkeys used to be in indigenous American agriculture that they would free range through the managed landscape but still rely mm. on the humans for protection and a little bit of supplementary feeding. Mm. But that's, oh, that's probably cool. something I won't get around to doing. Like I, I'm, I'm looking at how much time and resources and, and motivation I have. Um, one thing I'm really conscious of is that this project is just me. And if I get a serious injury or I burn myself out psychologically, it's going to end prematurely before it hits uh, payoff. Um, particularly with the bunyas, like I've I've got to make it to to relative old age in decent health for that to all be worthwhile. So um, I've learned to be. I don't I don't know if you've ever seen how genuine peasant labor works. Like they're really slow and gentle and methodical and persistent because they know if they injure themselves, there's no hospital that's going to rush in and patch them up. Like they're pretty much on their own, mm -hmm. and that culture of respecting your body in its work is something I think we've really lost in the West. You see so many people like get into permaculture, get really enthusiastic. And a few years later, they've got like an RSI injury from doing something Burnout with such, deter yeah, such determination that they don't pay mm -hmm. attention to what their body is telling them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I learned that this weekend I was building some stairs, uh, 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 I had to do all this grading and stuff and, I got about one good day out of myself. And then I was like, oh, oh man, the next day I was like, I'm hurting. <laughs> I'm really hurting. It was a fun day, though. It was mm -hmm. one fun day. Um, yeah. I, I suspect I suspect a lot of this will be generational. Like if you grew up in a school being forced to sit in a crappy plastic chair for eight hours a day, your body is not going to develop to its full potential. Whereas in potentially in future generations, children will be involved in farm work from a younger age and their mm. bodies will actually develop their full strength. Mm. So I think we have to be a bit uh, forgiving of ourselves from where we're coming from. <laughs> yeah. I am just a marketing guy. I tend to spend a lot of time sitting in a chair <laughs> and then occasionally yeah, I get that. decide to build stairs for some darn reason. So um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've done the same thing trying to collect wood for the wood stove. So, <laughs> um, so you, you said you're doing this all by yourself. Or do you have assistance? Do you have family support? I, I, like what else is I have I have a very supportive partner who pays the bills, okay. um, who who is who helps with the occasional job when I need another set of hands, but um they are not a gardener. Um they've been really great mm -hmm. for helping on like the IT and the tech side of things of like setting up websites and reaching out to people. 
uh, particularly with the writing, that's been great because this self-publishing is, uh, it's a lot easier than it used to be, but there's still a lot of hurdles to to navigate. Um, so yeah, I'm very, very okay. grateful for that. And in some ways, having two passionate gardeners work on a project can be complicating because like you're constantly disagreeing about what plant should go yeah. where. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful in that respect. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> what? So I'd kind of like, kind of set the stage for us. Like, so you've got 40 acres. Mm -hmm. um, are there sections that are, are devoted to certain experiments? Do you have like more biodiverse, like, uh, like um, I guess just areas that are a little, maybe more wild. Like mm -hmm. what's, what's, what's your land layout look like? That, that, that's a good question. So I've got about a third of an acre of flat land close to the house that I use for vegetables. And that's right next to the goat shed. So the manure is right near where I need it. I'm always cutting branches for the goats. So the leftover wood from that gets turned into biochar, um, which I just do in surface pits and quenching it at the right time. I, I don't use all the metal, metal contraptions because I mean, you just make them and then they rust within a couple of years. Uh, I'd rather find a simpler way. And that's the only real uh, soil texture amendment that I use because we've got a very, very strange cracking clay. Um, so the rest of the place is mostly uh, low hills. 10 acres of that is for rotational goat paddocks that they use every day. Um, but I'm starting to learn to herd the goats outside of those areas. Um, most of the rest of that area is planted with bunyas and fodder trees, and it's really just been let go. Um, but particularly as we go from a really wet season through to dry, I'm going to have to do some management of the biomass with the goats to minimize the fire risk. Um, the only other major section, there's probably two acres of creek flats because we we boundary a creek. Um, that's the only place that has semi-decent uh, sedimentary kind of soil. And a lot of that I've planted with, uh, do you know the ice cream bean tree? It's a, a legume tree with really broad leaves from yeah, South America. Um, so uh, I would recommend you check out the Inga uh Inca Foundation, which are showing uh, subsistence farmers in South and Central America to use this tree in really densely planted rows. So when the trees grow up and out, they smother all of the weeds that grow underneath them. And when you want to plant a crop, you cut the trees back and all of that mulch turns into like your fertilizer for the crop. Um, it's also a phosphorus accumulator. So it brings minerals up from the soil. And then you can use that wood for firewood rather than, rather than cutting the wild forests. And um, when you're doing slash and burn agriculture, you really shouldn't come back to a patch for 20 years. Um, this Inga uh, ice cream bean alley system is getting consistent yields year after year. Um, I think they've been going for like 20 years now. Wow. So um, yeah, they're just showing people wow. a way that they can spare the rainforest around them from being constantly trashed. Mm. And yeah, um, I've put in a system like sorry. that. It works really well. That's where I grow my maize and my pumpkins and things like that that okay. work on a bigger scale. Um, but yeah, the main difficulty is I can spend most of my spring preparing all of the beds and planting the corn crop. And then through the summer, either we have a drought and the crop doesn't get started or we get a huge flood and everything goes underwater. So the last big crop that I did down there, um, it got destroyed. So in the long run, I'm probably going to switch over to seeing how I can integrate the ice cream bean trees with canna as a staple crop because it cool. will continue growing in semi-shade. Um, and what I would be doing uh, is cutting back the um, the ice cream bean in order to give it extra light so that you produce a, a crop that's worth harvesting that year. 
Um, but if I don't harvest a crop or it goes underwater, I mean, it, it just avoids all of the issues that come from uh, annual crops when uh, okay. you just have to have everything line up perfectly to get a finished product. Mm. Right. Um, you were saying that where your farm is now, was that part of the logged, the area that was logged? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. the mineral cycles have been broken here. Like people can't raise cows right. anymore unless they're constantly on okay. mineral licks. Okay. So what does the local ecology look like now? Uh, it's mostly horse paddocks that are full of okay. weeds. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, a lot and then of what you've are... planted? Uh, what I've planted has turned into weeds that are like six feet tall at, the, at their peak, yeah. which the neighbors are, some of them are horrified by it because they're kind of, you know, baby boomer neat freaks. Um, other ones see all of the wildlife that's pouring out of my place and they love it. Mm -hmm. And it, it's funny because if we ever lose the ability to like run mowers and whippersnippers all over the landscape constantly, it's going to look like my property and people are going to freak mm -hmm. out. They will not be able to cope psychologically mm -hmm. with the chaos. Whereas me, like as long as I can see where I'm going, I don't care if the weeds are up to my nose. Um, mm -hmm. I've had a few cases I've been wandering in the lowlands and the weeds have been like eight feet over my head and I got lost and... I was like, I'll, I was like looking for landmarks and trying to try to like reorient myself in the landscape. But it's funny because we've got this variable climate. It's like this great green wave that it reaches this crescendo, and you think, "Oh my god, I'm never going to get on top of it. It's the end of the world." And then you just wait a few years, and it goes away on its own. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen similar thing happens, like when I took the cows off the paddocks, and first this nasty weed moved in, and everyone's like, "Oh, you got to spray it. You got to do all this." I just waited like two years and it's like, it's gone. Like it was just a passing thing responding to the constant impact yep. of the cattle. And yeah, you just have to wait a little while and, and it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> what are, yeah, what are your long-term goals with this? I mean, obviously you have, uh, you know, some specific goals with like the bunion, uh, the bunion trees, is that's what it's called? Mm, a bunya. Yeah. yeah. Bunya. Bunya. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But like, do you sell the seeds? Like, do you, I mean, is there a business model here or or explain more about that? Yeah. Um. So I do sell seeds through my website, uh, uh, even overseas, but it's uh, up to you whether they get through your local customs or not. I just send them and say a prayer. Um, that doesn't make enough money to keep the lights on. Like like I said, I'm very lucky to have a partner who who covers that side of things. And I think that we get bored if they were at home 24 hours a day, they 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 still have that mindset. They like to get out and do other things. Yeah. Um during the um the COVID panic, uh all of our local stores sold out of vegetable seeds. I don't know, like it was toilet paper and lettuce seeds. I don't know what mm -hmm. people were thinking was going to happen. And I suspect most of those lettuce seeds are still sitting in a drawer somewhere, like never to be mm -hmm. planted. So um, that coincided for when I had my good vegetable varieties that liked the local conditions and um, I had enough quantities. So I made a decent income for a year um, selling to all of the local hardwares and gardening stores. Nice. And I, well, it was wonderful. I reached this moment where I'm like, oh, after all of this work toiling away in, on my own, I'm finally doing something that's useful for the community and that will allow me to like continue. But, 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 but the second those glossy packets imported from the greenhouses of Holland turned up again, mm -hmm. nobody wanted to know me. Mm. So I got a little bit bitter about that. Mm -hmm. That was kind of at the time where I'm like, do I really want to grow 50 varieties of vegetables 
just on the off chance right. that somebody wants one packet of every five years when they've got nothing else. Um, so that was another part of the motivation in scaling back. Um, but it, it, again, it's the kind of thing fads and fashions come and go. So you just have to be ready to jump on an opportunity. And I suspect the trend will only continue as time, you know, continues as, as events unfold. So I'll just bide my time sure. and try not to, yeah. um, to take it personally. Um, and I did right. have early uh, ambitions about producing all of my own calories, all of my own food, just even for a year as a kind of experimentation. Um, I'm start. I'm starting to accept that, given my limited physical strength and my advancing age, that wouldn't necessarily be the best use of my time. When I can buy a bag of rice for a dollar, and instead I'm focusing on getting my staple crops to the point where I can put one day's worth of work into them and get two to three days worth of food back. So it's the return on investment mm -hmm. of the system that's more important than the overall, you know, tick the box. Yes, I produced all my food calories this year. Um, because then in theory, if people had nothing else to do with their time, the system can be scaled to the point where people can actually survive on it. Mm -hmm. Right. And and you write you write about all of this, right? Like you have a yes. blog. You're kind of like sharing your experiments as you go along. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I've been blogging for a few years now at zeroinputagriculture.com. Um, I've moved on to Substack as well too, because I think some people find their their authors to look at through there. Um, and eventually, one of these days, I think when I have more solid results under my belt, give me another five years at least, I might write a nonfiction book kind of summarizing everything that I've done along the way. Mm. But um, yeah, nice. I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of people who write books based on principles that they actually haven't lived and seen them work mm -hmm. with their own eyes. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to be patient with that project. Yeah. Um, but the fiction well, has been a, doing... a good kind of, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think what you're doing with Zero Input Agriculture is uh, super cool. And I would love to read a book about it. Like it's, it's highly valuable so far. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, give, give me time, give me time. And I, I'm mm -hmm. going to have the same problem that Fukuoka has, that I'll be talking about specific details of what worked for me. Yeah. But you could travel 20 kilometers in any direction from here and none of it would work if you just copy mm -hmm. the recipe. So I'm going to try and make sure I focus on the principles about how I made the decisions and the strategies I used along the way. And this is a sad reality. Like some people might move on to a block of land with high hopes that is just it's just impossible for it to support people. Um, mm -hmm. for, for context, like there is no tradition of pre-industrial agriculture where I live. Um, it was colonialism coming in and digging up the gold and cutting down the trees. And then it morphed into suburbia, like running on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And there, there's indigenous practices that go way back. Um, and there's useful things in there, but... Um, there's also possibilities of melding that with modern approaches and modern crops too. So yeah, it's um, whatever ends up as a result will be a hybrid. There's that principle again, that mm -hmm. mix things together and allow them to interplay and pull out what actually works from that combination. So I, 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 I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. With, when it comes to hybrids, when it comes to kind of blending things, right. Sometimes mm -hmm. you get something that can be um, invasive, right? Invasive yes. to the natural ecosystem. Have you encountered that um, 
is it not real? Is is it the kind of plants you're using that's not really a big concern? Um, or how do you address that? Or or do you do you even have to address it? Uh, my, it's funny. Like there's long term and short term issues here. So my long term approach is that the weeds are going to be the only thing that save us in the long run. <laughs> um, like if there'd been a weedy tree that grew all over the Middle East during the early phases of agriculture that stopped them turning vast regions into deserts, they probably would have like those civilizations might have had a chance of bouncing back. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for weeds. Uh, and it's funny, like I used to go around pulling out uh, like the camphor laurel tree is a major weed in our area. Um, now it's a valuable resource because my goats love eating it. Um, mm. it it's like one of the best mineral rich trees that they can feed on. Uh, and yeah, I, I think a lot of our focus on invasiveness is a really short term, almost like a projection. Like we we yeah we we want to we want to put all of the blame on this one particular nasty plant that we've learned to hate. It, it and it ultimately is there because of us. Um, mm -hmm. And it's probably yeah. doing more good than harm relative to humanity if you really yeah. weigh it all up. Um, a really good example of this is lantana. Um, which is a, a major weed in Australia. So the lantana that we have here in Australia doesn't grow anywhere else in the world. It's actually a hybrid of two or three relatively well-behaved ornamental varieties that people used to grow. And the only reason it became a weed is because it's not palatable to cattle and it loves growing in places where people cut down forests. So, and that's pretty much the whole of our East Coast. We okay. cut down all of the trees. Yep. We tried to force cattle onto it and we created this perfect niche and, you know, these these relatively unassuming little ornamental plants that we were growing in our gardens got together and, and brewed up something completely different. And the, in the long term, the places that they've kept cattle out of, they've probably done more good than harm to the landscape and the ecosystem. And usually what happens, you know, you wait 50 to 100 years without disturbing it, the canopy closes again, mm -hmm. the trees grow through this stuff. Right. And you go back to forest. The soil pH changes. Yeah. And yeah. It's gone. Yeah. 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 We yeah. have we have something similar, you know, a, a similar kind of t case like this, right, with kudzu here in the mm. southeast United mm -hmm. States, right. And the funny thing is that kudzu really only grows at the edges of forests, right. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is in an area like Atlanta, everywhere is the edge of a forest because there is no mm -hmm. actual closed canopy. So kudzu yeah. is able to go wild, but you know, all it's really doing is just pulling down. It's not it's not like it's pulling down old growth. There's no old growth forest anywhere. It's just pulling mm -hmm. down the pines that we planted 70 years ago. And mm -hmm. I'm curious about, you know, flash forward a century, what comes out of that, right? When mm. trees, when more when more native trees or whatever trees are left, those seeds grow up, they close that canopy. We stop having as many highways and big mm -hmm. stretches of open canopy, right? And yeah. That kudzu doesn't have a niche anymore. Like it doesn't have an opportunity. Yeah, to yeah that's it. Explode the way it is. We created that niche. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. a book I would really recommend is called The New Wild. I forget the author, but it's a investigative journalist who traveled all around the world um, looking at this issue of invasive biology as a science mm -hmm. and taking the counter position that it's become this great industry of, of killing mm -hmm. things that we suppose are evil and probably doing more harm than good in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm.
you can eat kudzu, which I didn't oh, yeah. realize. So I know now I know like if worse comes to worse, I'm just gonna go along the highway and just eat kudzu all the time. Of cream kudzu <laughs> yeah, there you go. all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think the Japanese Bell, yeah, starch pickles. from the tubers. Yeah, yeah. And the leaves and, are um, huge. they're huge yeah. leaves. They're like dinner plate size. So it's like collard greens everywhere. Food wrap. And and see, see, this is the thing for a reliable landrace crop, it has to have a degree of weediness. So Mm -hmm. when you look at the amount of energy you could put into like growing a a few square meters of modern hybrid wheat, um, the ancestors of that crop used to grow six feet tall. And once you got an area of flat, relatively silty land established with that landrace rye, it just dominated the entire ecosystem. People weren't out there hand weeding, you know, 50 acres. Um, they were just having to nudge the ecosystem in the direction of favoring that that one crop. And it only produced about a tenth as much grain per square meter. But all of that biomass was used for like thatching roofs and feeding animals through the winter. It mm-hmm. had all of these other uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's the reason why the pre-industrial population never got beyond a billion people is because we needed crops that saved some of the resources that they created for their own survival. They didn't just give it all to humans and allow our machines to make up the difference. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So what's your what's your favorite crop? Like what what is the thing like that you like to eat? Specifically that you like to eat. you <laughs> grow and you like to eat it. And how do you uh, eat it? Okay, uh, so one of the biggest challenges for us is growing vegetables through the summer because it gets really hot. The weeds grow like crazy. Um, We come from a European background. So we tend to think of like what most of the crops that we grow up eating are cool season crops. They grow through our winter. And then when you get to summer, nobody knows what to do. It's all too hot and hard. And we just abandon the garden and deal with it later. So um, I've really enjoyed finding crops that love our summer. So the three star, oh, excuse me, the three star performers. So, um, one I really love that I'm eating now is a bush snake bean. So normal snake beans are climbers. They'll get like eight feet tall. And the problem with these varieties is that they are bred for market gardening. So when you're a market gardener, you want the crop to grow really, really fast to crop all at once. So you harvest it in one big go, you carry it to market, you make your profit and it's the end. That doesn't work in a home garden. You want the exact opposite. You want a long, slow, steady harvest. Um, and that's what I love about these um, bush snake beans. So you don't have to build a trellis for them and they keep producing pods all the way up to the end of autumn and they just never stop. And um, they've got relatively good resistance to a local insect pest that bothers a lot of the legumes that we grow here. Um, so that's an amazing plant. Um, I've even planted it in spring after probably six months with no rain, didn't irrigate it and they still germinated. And they didn't really start producing well until we got a bit of rain later in the season, but they were already growing and ready to take advantage of that. So yeah, just amazing vigor. Oh, and our local bees are starting to hybridize the few strains that I started out with. So they're only getting better year to year. Um, Another plant I really love is Rosella. Um, It's a hibiscus relative. You might've seen the the purpley pink flowers in champagne and syrup is kind of the latest trend. 
Um, traditionally, they used to be used for making jam here as well. I did it a few times. It's too much sugar for me. I ended up giving most of it away and it's a lot of bother. But it's grown in India as a leaf vegetable. So the young tips okay. um, are just absolutely delicious. They've got a little bit of acidity, a little bit of floral notes, and you put them in stir fries and they're just amazing. Mm. Um, a good comparison would be okra, which is another plant in the hibiscus family, but it produces its pods in, in a big flush and you have to pick them every damn day or they get really big and woody and drain all of the resources from the plant and like set it back permanently. Whereas Rodzella, you can pick it any time that you're ready. And if you don't pick it to death, then you get a bonus crop of those flowers at the end of the year that you can use. I, I like them in herbal teas. You can dry them down. Um, so that's a, a kind of enduring use nice. for them. Um, and the other thing I really love about it is it's a shrub that gets about a meter tall. So if you're not perfectly uh, on the ball with your weeding through the summer, it will keep its head above the weeds and it'll just buy you time. Um, once it's established, I'll often go in and I'll just hand sickle the weeds down rather than pulling their roots out. Um, you're just tipping mm. the equilibrium toward the crop rather than like absolutely controlling everything. Yeah. Um, oh, and there were three that I mentioned. What was the third one? Oh, um, probably lab lab bean. Uh, no, that's kind of boring. It's another legume. Um, no, probably my shallots um, because it's a hybrid population that I put together. Um, when I first grew shallots from like little tiny packets of half dead seeds that I paid for the privilege of getting, um, <laughs> they grew, but they just, they didn't, they didn't really want to be there. Um, but mm. after, I think it took two years of sowing the seed from the most vigorous individuals, I now have a strain of shallots that look like leeks. Like they've got these big fat stems oh, wow. that at the end of the season, you can use them like a leek. Um, they persist for like probably a year and a half after you get them going wow. and yeah, you thin them to begin. And then the bigger ones, you just take individual leaves off. And then right at the end, when they're starting to lose vigor, you harvest the whole thing. Um, when, when I abandoned the vegetable garden, I was still harvesting them like nine months after I did nothing with the garden. I just turned my back on it other than occasionally going out to pick things. Mm. So when you talk about like weediness and invasiveness, that's what you want. You you want things that have at least some ability to stand up for themselves in your local conditions. Mm -hmm. hmm. but, any... but again, that that's all vegetables, and vegetables are great, but they're only like ten twenty percent of the diet. If you don't have right. a staple crop to fall back on, um, and I, I I'm not a a doomer in terms of fast collapse. I think this is going to unfold over the next two to three generations. Uh, but while we have to take advantage of the resources that we have now, and it's relatively easy to source seeds from all over the world, uh, people mm -hmm. in the US and Europe have bigger advantages in tapping into government-run seed databases. Um, that's where I got my uh, stock for my corn that I developed. And that database, the government-owned database, was sold to the commercial seed consortium like a few months afterwards. So if I lose wow. that corn strain... There's no way for me to create it again. Right. Um, so those Such opportunities an advantage won't having last. all those genetics. Absolutely. That's the one thing that you can't just, well, if you try and create mm. a crop from absolutely nothing, then you're looking at a much longer process. If you start with something right. that's already close to being a crop or has some chance of adapting to your conditions. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. you normally need like a dozen distinct genetic strains as a foundation okay. to start doing that work. And there's never been a better time in history to put that resource together. Um, fast forward another 50 years, 
that may not be an option for future generations. So do it while you can mm -hmm. and share, like share that seed. As soon as you start making progress, mm -hmm. give it away to everyone. Like I, the seed that I sell, I do it pretty much at cost. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not making a lot of money from this. And if people come to me and say, oh, I really want to try this, but I've got no money. I'll, I'll usually dig into my own pocket because I'm that keen to get this stuff spread around the world, uh, around my, my yeah. neighborhood. Do you have a greenhouse do you, or, or anything like a greenhouse that where you do seeds? I do. Yeah, I do. So um, when you first buy seeds, the quantity is usually really small and the vigor uh, is often not very good. Um, but the aim is always to get to direct sowing the crop as quickly as possible. Um, and yeah, all of my vegetables have reached that stage. Um, with the canners, uh, I can do direct sowing, but I usually still start them in pots and then transplant later. Um, but once you've got them growing, um, you can dig up the tubers and divide them. And you barely, like you dig a hole, you throw them in, you put the clod of dirt back over the top without even crumbling it, and they're fine. Like they they have got real vigor in their in their genes. That's awesome. Mm. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, I feel like I've been dominating this time. And do you have any uh, additional? Do you have any questions about his uh, experiment well, with farming? I I do. I want to know if you're growing any fun fruits or anything. Being in the subtropics. Ah uh, yes yes yes. So um, fruit and veg both get a lot of emphasis in permaculture. And now that I've started doing them at scale, I've realized. They're fun, but they're kind of, they're like the icing on top of the cake. Um, but there are okay. some fruits that do really well here. So we have a very similar climate to Eastern South Africa. And there's a fruit from there called the K-apple, K-E-I. And it's it's covered in these monstrous thorns. They're, they're big, honest, rhinoceros-repelling thorns. So I don't mind them. Like after working with cacti as a, as a child when I was collecting plants, the little tiny thorns that work into your skin, I hate them. But these things they're very upfront about what they'll do to you if you run into the tree um but they get an apricot like fruit and they're incredibly tough um jaboticabas do really well here oh i'm collecting persimmon genetics um okay. growing seed grown persimmons i really love them because the fruit are resistant to birds and bats because we have fruit bats everywhere here right uh, but if you pick them just when they're starting to ripen and finish the ripening indoors you don't have to do any protection um, yeah, jaboticabas are really good too because they ripen really quickly. So again, you don't have to do any netting if you get the timing right. Uh, citrus grows really well here. So I'm trying to find old seed-grown strains of citrus, um, particularly mandarins. Oh, okay. There's varieties that grow reliably from seeds, so you don't have to graft every generation. Um, but yeah, when it comes to producing sugar here, like you don't need much of it in the diet. And if that's your main right. target, you're better off growing sugarcane and learning to process that okay. um, or keeping bees. Um, so we've got a neighbor that keeps bees right. that I swap goat yogurt with all the time. I oh, thought nice. about doing these myself and I knew that I'd probably neglect them and not do them justice. Um, it, it's much easier to find someone else to specialize in that skill who's on a smaller block. And his bees are all over my property. I, I've got bee fodder okay. everywhere among the weeds. So I'm, I'm just getting back what they're borrowing. <laughs> Um, and bananas grow really well here too, but they're a dead end crop because they're a sterile hybrid. You can't do any breeding work with them. So um, they're not the kind of thing you can really rely on. Um, some people are experimenting with plantain type bananas here, the starchy ones. And um, because of our fluctuating climate, they're not reliable as a staple crop. Mm. 
Nope. I think we might have lost Simon. Yeah, I think he said he just has to <laughs> put, a, put a kid to bed. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah, very Doomer optimism. Um, yes. Well, it's actually my, usually the first question I ask is, do you consider yourself a Doomer optimist? And if so, why? If not, why not? Um, and we're kind of getting this to this more towards the back end of the conversation. Yeah. But yeah, no, no. does that does that moniker fit you? Do you feel like it I, fits you? The second I saw the channel, when I first picked up on, on you guys, I was instantly, it's like, yes, yes, that is exactly who I am. Because uh, in, in the early stage of like learning all of this stuff with peak oil and how fragile everything is, and, you know, the, the great churning of civilizations in history, it, it's very easy to get caught in that kind of panic phase. Um, and you have to be like in those early days around the GFC, when I was like giving up my academic career, I was like, am I doing the right thing? Is this just a panic and it's all going to blow over and you know, it's not going to happen for hundreds of years if it happens at all. Um, so I learned to live with my one feet, one foot in each world mm -hmm. um, to, to do experimental farming in a way that, you know, if Star Trek happens tomorrow and we enter this post scarcity economy, that I'm not going to regret the way I spent my life. And like, I love growing plants. Like I've done that my whole life. So it wasn't a big stretch for me to enjoy doing that for somebody who just learns about, you know, peak oil and they, they hate gardening and they hate being outside to run off into the countryside and try growing food. I think that's a really bad life decision because you're probably going to regret it sooner or later. Um, so I think people have to, find their niche in the system and find hope on the other side too. And I'm very much about the hope. Um, and that's what my fiction is about. Uh, it's about exploring what could come after industrial civilization that isn't just Mad Max, you know, on repeat mm -hmm. um, or going back to the caves or medieval times. And yeah, the, the power of biology um, to decouple from industrial technology, I think is something that we're overlooking. Mm -hmm. um, and and a, a big inspiration for me too is when you study the Neolithic revolution, like when agriculture and civilization first happened in, in its narrow sense, um, that was a biotechnological revolution. Um, it was all of that was built on a few hybrid staple crops that changed how people could live, changed how they could relate to the landscape and how they could organize their society. And none of the fancy stuff, none of the kings and the swords and the giant stone temples would have been possible without those two wild grains hybridizing and then hybridizing with a third grain and um, falling into the hands of humans who were paying attention to what was happening around them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. Well, you know, I think that the beauty, so many Doomer optimists kind of come to this kind of the land uh, and a relationship to the land is, is an answer of sorts, right? It, 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 you know, it can lead directly, you know, many of us see a direct, line from that act to a certain sort of civilizational salvation right but it is at least a personal salvation right mm -hmm. is it, it is it's it's an enjoyable way to live your life at the very yes. least despite all of the noise and all the other stuff going on that is still a worthwhile way to spend your life um mm. and i i think that you know i think that is that is probably why so much of the heart of doomer optimism does tend to revolve around homesteading um, you know, uh, land stewardship, you know, this kind of sense that in the rituals of growing food in, in taking care of animals and taking care of family, there is a sort of salvation in that, 
you know, yes, um, yeah. re- you know, regardless of what's going on at the macro or or microeconomic, you know, level. Um, I, I see what we do as creating a endurable, a durable seed that's going to wait for the right opportunity to germinate in the future when it's really needed. Um, it, it's it's like me. I don't I don't feel guilty that I buy rice from the shop to like cover half of my calories. Half the the other half are coming from my goats. Like I can't keep up with the milk some days. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I'm creating resources that I can hand on to future generations for the time when they'll need it. Um, I've got another little thought experiment that I often run through as well. Like people often talk about the the unexpected power of exponential functions in terms of like suddenly being overwhelmed by growth, but you can flip that around on its head as well. So at the moment, the average uh, global birth rate is two per hundred and the average global death rate is one per hundred, you know, round numbers. So if you know a hundred people, assuming that like you're not just on Facebook and you don't know any real people anymore, but if you had a hundred people in your life, that means every year two babies come into the world and one person dies. You you go to two baby showers and one funeral, and that's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but that gives you a one percent growth rate year to year, which means every seventy years the population doubles, mm-hmm. and that really quickly turns into a massive ecological problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, but flip everything around. So now in your hundred people that you know, there's two funerals every year and one baby born, and now you have a net one percent death rate, and has your life changed dramatically? Are there bodies piled up in the streets? Are people running around screaming? No, it's pretty much the same. But when you do the maths, it means the global population will halve in 70 years. Mm. And a planet with 4 billion people on it instead of 8 billion people opens up a whole lot more possibilities about how we can live in the world as we find it. Yeah, and and finding new, you know new ways to... You know, we're we're also just so much of the world is being used in such an an, an astoundingly wasteful way, right? Yes. Um. You know, I think you know. Uh, I mean, where I am in, in Atlanta, right? I mean, just like the sheer volume of parking and and space used for roads, um, mm. and just the way that commercial areas are built, you know, as strip malls. I mean, everything is just in, just uses space so wastefully, um. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of ways we could alter that, you know, where it, it, it's not, doesn't even require population to go down. It's just using the space differently. Um, and, um, you know, America is, is at an interesting inflection point, right? Um, you know, I don't know what kind of, there's, it, the assumption is there's going to have to be some sort of external pressure, right? P- people are not going to en masse make a decision on their own. Um, to just use less space, less wastefully. Mm. Um, but I think those pressures are coming and in, in the 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 raw resources required to be that wasteful are now becoming more and more expensive. So in fact, prudence becomes the more fiscally responsible way to go. Um, mm. I think we're heading into a period like that where the kind of contraction in a way might happen happen naturally. Um, you know, maybe particularly in the West, there's a huge amount of fat that can still be cut out of people's lifestyles without it being a disaster. Um, If people can find ways to adapt and the the options are there, but most people don't go down that pathway until they're forced. Yeah. 
it's one thing I'm actually really grateful for the prolonged time I spent in academia. It taught me how to be very happy with very, very little money. Of I, I, I joke that we call ourselves upper lower class. Mm-hmm. So if you looked at our, our, like our annual income and our bank accounts, you'd be like, oh my God, they're poor. But we don't want any more money. It would just, would just be like, what do we do with it? Like it would just cause problems. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been interesting because on the farm, I've done everything by hand. Uh, like used hand tools, like I, I could have bought all of this machinery to do everything faster, but I've realized that doing things slowly has the benefit that when I make a mistake, I make it on a small scale and I realize mm. it's a mistake before I plant, you know, 5,000 of that particular tree and realize, oh, no, 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 I don't want that tree. I want something else. Mm-hmm. Um, or like reshaping the landscape with, um, you know, all this heavy machinery, putting swales everywhere, only to realize that it doesn't suit your soil type and your climate. Um, you, you've imposed something on the landscape on, on an industrial scale. It just doesn't work. And you don't find out until it's too late if you've got too much power behind your decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very profound. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that like, societally, mm-hmm. so, uh, certainly in the West, where uh, we need to learn that lesson <laughs> and, and quickly. Yeah, we're making huge right. uh, generationally like important decisions on, you know, without thinking about it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I hate to keep coming back to Atlanta and freaking cement, but that is that is the, our dominant, uh, you know, export crop is cement here. Um, but like, I mean, they've spent 10 years building this like 50 or no. Yeah, like 50 million dollar, like essentially it's a gigantic roundabout. Right. Mm. And they've been spending 10 years <laughs> building this thing. And it's like. Oh, like this thing is this thing is like the size of like four NFL stadiums, you know, like this, the amount of space and resources taken up building this thing for this assumed demand and traffic down the road. Um, And it's like now it's even more ludicrous because it's like, well, you guys are going to complete it just in time for the U.S. to start collapsing, you know, Um <laughs> And demand for traffic like that, you know, falling, falling through the the floor. So mm. um, I would love, I would love, I don't know about you, Simon, but I would love to hear more about mm-hmm. your fiction. You've kind of been alluding oh, to of course, it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. The podcast, but I'd love to hear more about your world, where you Absolutely. are in writing it. Um, yes. Have you published anything yet? Like where, where's, where's the journey? Tell us all about it. So I'm relatively new to the writing game. I managed to get a short story accepted into uh, one of John Michael Greer's anthologies. So that was a really, really lovely start. Uh, the the Cli-Fi parody anthology that he put up recently. So I had a lot of fun with that. Um, so the, the work itself is a few months away from publication. It's a series of four novellas. So each one is a relatively short read, but they build to a bigger, bigger story, um, which I think is great these days. Like, for me, the cost of buying an ebook, it doesn't really, it's a few dollars. Like it's, it's, it's not a huge investment, but it's the time I put aside for reading that book is what I'm really, uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's far more valuable to me. So that's why I went for novellas. Uh, so yeah, it's set in a distant future where industrial uh, technology as we know it today is pretty much a, pretty much forgotten. There's like basically no trace of it left. Um, so yeah, after 30,000 years, there's only a couple of hints of industrial technology that are being maintained and, uh, uh, a couple of new kinds of humanity have appeared, um, very similar to how, uh, Homo sapiens, uh, appeared in Africa and then just took over the whole planet really quickly. Uh, the reason why 
modern humans, Homo sapiens, managed to do that was probably because we could cooperate with each other more effectively. Um, so uh, a, a domestication syndrome that seems common in animals is that you can reduce our reactive aggression. So some animals, you, uh, wild animals, you put two of them in a cage, they're just going to tear each other apart. But uh, modern humans seem particularly good at not automatically turning on strangers. And that allowed humanity to become something like a super organism of all of these little tribes of hunter-gatherers spread over the planet who used to swap uh, technology and culture and mates with other people who were right next to them. Mm -hmm. um, so even in Stone Age times, like before civilization, you would find uh, obsidian being mined in one location, turning up like thousands of kilometers away in arrowheads because it's been passed hand to hand to hand all the way along. So uh, my new next step in humanity basically is trying to extend that process. It's like, what would we need to do to become more like uh, a multicellular organism on a cultural level? Um, and I don't know how much I want to give away with that, but uh, it's mostly set in Australia and New Zealand. Because, yeah, uh, yeah it, it's, it's, it, it's a story that's meant to unfold as you go through it. Mm -hmm. But um, so how did you handle so uh, sci-fi is all I'm an author as well. I, I you know, I tend to focus on horror, uh, mm -hmm. generally speaking, but like science fiction has always freaked me out because I'm always like, I'm not intelligent enough to intelligent enough to make a prediction. <laughs> so I don't even want to try um, mm -hmm. for me thinking about this far future that you're discussing. The, the thing that would trip me up as an, uh, as an author would really be the ecology. Like, yeah. what is the earth like then? Um, and how did you how did you address that? Well, one thing I could possibly delve into is it's all very well to like create this perfect society that you imagine, mm -hmm. but how do you get to that point from here? So in this future, I'm imagining the ecosystem has basically been completely taken over by humanity um, as as a kind of fairly obvious endpoint of where things are going. But um, one of the one of the um, difficulties is how do you go from a, a more spontaneous ecosystem to a fully managed one? So I think this is my theory about something that actually happened in the past. I think that the domestication of dogs was a crucial ingredient in allowing large scale um, complex civilizational agriculture to happen. So um, dogs went through a similar process of uh, increasing their ability to digest starch. And that allows them to be really compatible with how humans work. So humans are primarily evolved to feed on meat and fat. You've probably like done some research into like keto and the effects on people's health. But over time, we've become more proficient at, adapt at eating larger and larger amounts of starch in our diet. And this puts us in a really weird ecological position. So when times are really abundant and there's lots of uh, animals around, we can hunt. But during the times that become lean, we can fall back on eating plants to keep our populations high until the good times come again. And this acts as a kind of um, a kind of leverage point that allows us to take over ecosystems. And I suspect that dogs were crucial in allowing large scale agriculture because they will drive wild animals away from crops on the edge of civilization. And you don't need to feed them with meat. You can feed them with leftover bread and, you know, boiled yeah. potatoes and things. Uh, they, they function on the surplus of that agricultural system, which creates a synergy um, because you can create more grain and feed more dogs and then grow more grain. 
Mm. Um, so I project in my books a similar thing happening in the oceans that people living along the coasts uh, have domesticated a, a giant groper species um, that they control its breeding, like it swims into channels along the coast, uh, but they maintain artificially elevated populations of this uh, omnivore that just eats everything in the surroundings by feeding its surplus starch from the land. So mm. that allows uh, a process of starting to uh, colonize the oceans themselves. And there are plenty of mammals that have gone from land-based to living in the sea that have adapted their kidneys, that they can drink seawater, that they don't need fresh water anymore. Um, there are, the reason why we don't have more plant life growing in the oceans is because of usually a lack of phosphorus and iron. So before we the planet developed an oxygen-rich atmosphere, iron and phosphorus were freely dissolved in the oceans, and there was just life everywhere. Like the whole ocean would have been green with algae. But as the oxygen levels rose, all of those minerals precipitated out and sank to the bottom. And now if you're a plant floating around on the surface of the ocean, there's nothing there for you to build your bodies out of. There's no phosphorus, there's no iron. If you add those things in, suddenly things start growing again. So um, one of my big ideas in the book is that this new kind of humanity is going to develop forms of floating agriculture that have the potential to colonize the entire ocean surface, to turn mm. that desert that's been pretty much devoid of life compared to other ecosystems for the last, what's it been, 2 billion years, to bring that back to life. Mm. I mean, it's like 60% of the planet and yeah. we're doing very little with it other right. than scraping it for fish. Mm. Oh, that's pretty interesting. I like mm. that. So, um, so yeah, the, the uh -huh. book is set. The book is set at the time when humanity in Australia is preparing for that big push to to start spreading out and colonizing the oceans. Um, but there's an older kind of humanity that has uh, uh, it, that's built on a, a really odious form of slavery um, that is through most of Eurasia and Africa. Uh, uh, the Americas are still relatively wild and untamed. So um, they they represent an interesting place that I, I should explore in later books if I get that far. But yeah, the first two books are, are set in New Zealand. The second two are set in Australia. Mm. Um, but they're, they're aware of what's happening in the rest of the world. I've always been really fascinated by that, you know, that the fact that there was this period where there were multiple, like, human-like species coexisting, Mm, um mm. I, I heard a theory that like the 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 kind of internal like the the uncanny valley like that feeling we have about uh robots mm. like maybe a, an actual like holdover from when we would encounter things that looked human but weren't human yeah and we want yeah. we had this immediate like not necessarily revulsion but just sort of like eh let's be a little bit wary yeah. this isn't actually yeah. a person um yeah. And I found that so fascinating. I mean, the idea that like you could just be walking around and then you'd encounter, you know, Neanderthals and just mm. be like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, you could probably communicate, you know, you certainly could mate trade things, mm. but they weren't people, you know, I mean, they weren't, they weren't humans. They weren't us, you know, and, 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 and the prevailing theory is that they would probably be hostile to outsiders um, mm -hmm. more hostile than humans would be. So it would be difficult to establish relations with them um, other than what seems to... Well, there's a theory that female Neanderthals were captured 
by uh, modern humans moving into their territory. Um, if you look at the genetic evidence, uh, male Neanderthal lineages seem to have been wiped out, but female ones were incorporated into modern humans. Mm. Yeah, I find that that's so fascinating, you know? Mm. Um, well, if we found Neanderthals alive today, how would we treat them? Like, would we right. would we put them in zoos? Would we give them yeah. full legal rights? It, it would be such a thorny issue. Oh, absolutely! Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's a that's a story in and of itself. You know, like what <laughs> yeah. what would what would the really? uh, what would humanity's reaction be to that? Um, mm. Interesting. Um, but that pattern is likely to repeat in the future. Some mm -hmm. small group of humans is likely to come up to innovate culturally, um, possibly genetically and to get an advantage over everyone else that's impossible to resist. And they're likely to spread out and replace all of the existing populations. And it's likely to be a hybrid population right. um, where this, this industrial period has moved different races, different cultures, different ethnicities around at, a, at an astonishing rate, brought them into contact and allowed them to intermarry and interbreed and create whole new cultures. Mm -hmm. So I, I see that as the most likely place where something new is going to emerge. Um, and I suspect it's going to involve a higher level of cooperativity between individuals. Yeah. Oh, that's so, cool. um, um, when you're, so the, are they, are all four finished? Uh, yes. Yeah. They'll be out in April. Okay. So I'm in mean, the final oh, stages nice. of editing. Um, people can check out the covers at my author website. I write under the pen name, uh, Haldane B. Doyle. So go to www.haldanebdoyle.com. There's a few short stories that you can read of uh, some kind of permaculturally oriented sci-fi in there. Mm -hmm. uh, sign up for my emails and you'll get monthly updates. I'm not going to flood your inbox with constant harassments to, to buy my book. I'll just let you know every month as it's getting close to coming out. Um, and I am also looking for uh, what's called advanced review copy readers. So in the in the writing world, We'll often send out a copy of a book to people who are very interested in it, and they'll get that for free in return for posting a review on, you know, our evil overlords, Amazon. I wonder if they're listening to these kind of things. And I've got to file somewhere with a little tick for the evil, mention yeah. the evil box. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry, you are not getting promoted. You're on a list. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, sorry. Uh, no, you, you go, you go, Simon. I, I'm sure I'm I, boat guarding it. It's okay. I wanted to ask about, uh, the world building of your mm. stories but i read some of the microfiction on your site oh um, lovely is that part of the same universe uh it's part of the same ethos but not directly related okay. to the to the universe okay okay it felt like they could have been on different timelines potentially but, in the same universe po but possibly the one of fall of the fire eaters that imagines a uh, a branch of humanity that becomes nocturnal and gives up using fire. Okay. Um, that's probably the closest to what you'd find in the okay. novellas. Mm. That's uh, cool. Um, would you consider the the new series to be like a uh, dystopian? Well, this is or... a really interesting thing. So I've tried to make it utopian, but a utopian story mm -hmm. is kind of boring. So the characters that I focus on are individuals that don't quite fit into the world that's utopian if you do fit into it okay. so it's a world where there's there's no there's no starvation there's no disease um, there's no unemployment everyone you know is in their perfect place and everything's running smoothly um, but that doesn't mean everyone that's born automatically 
fits okay. into that easily. So it still makes for an interesting story. You get to see them go through all their struggles of figuring of out what to do with their lives. Uh, but yeah, if you look at what's happening in the background, everyone else is like, what's their problem? Like they could just, okay. they could just get along and do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. It kind of found with the microfiction stories was that at first you're like, okay, this is pretty dystopian, but there's a lot of, it's not super dark and there's a lot of potential hope in, yes. in the ones that I read. So mm. yeah, I think that's interesting. Mm. Like the world felt like it could have been utopian, but the yes. situation it's not yeah yes yeah and definitely like western readers we expect a decent amount of drama to to kind of mm -hmm. keep the plot and the characters going uh, it's funny when i make summaries of my stories like crunch it all down i'm like this is like straight out of a telenovela <laughs> yeah well uh shane it has been lovely talking to you um why don't you kind of run one more time down how people can get in touch with you, uh, where they can find your writing, both your fiction and your nonfiction, um, and just kind of, this is your chance. This is your chance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Show yeah. Your <laughs> yes. So um, for my nonfiction work about my experimental farming, uh, where I do also do some more philosophical uh uh, broad kind of uh, posts as well. Uh, that would be zeroinputagriculture.com, uh, which can also be found at Substack if you're already on Substack. For And you can buy seeds through me as well if you're interested in any of my varieties um, or drop me an email through there. And I'm, I'm always happy to, to to talk to people. For my fiction, you can find me at uh, haldanebdoyle.com. Uh, that's my pen name, uh, which I'm just keeping separate for the fiction. Uh, so that website is up. Uh, if you sign up for my monthly emails, you will get uh, a free copy of the first book if you wish. Uh, otherwise, uh, I also include little uh, tidbits of illustrated weird biology in every email um, with a little joke at the end of it. So that's just something kind of fun for all of the biology nerds out there. And the novellas will start coming out as ebooks starting in April. Uh, they'll be released about a fortnight apart is the plan at the moment. So if you pick up at the beginning, then you can run all the way through to the end. And they're relatively short reads. I think two to three hours for each installment. And um, yeah, it's a it's a set in a future of purely biological technology as the foundation for a new kind of humanity. Mm. Excellent. Nice. Well, sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Oh. It sounds really lovely. Hopefully I haven't painted myself into a really bizarre niche. And um, this is something that people are, are looking for. Uh, new ways of thinking and hoping about the future. Because I, I wrote these stories for people who used to read science fiction, but then became kind of peak oil civilization collapse aware. And S Star Trek seems a bit silly and a little bit um, insulting when you develop that mindset, uh, that outlook on the world. And apocalyptic fiction... I mean, just turn on the news. Like, you don't need to read a novel or even watch a movie yeah. anymore. You just get the you just get the um the cliff notes from the news these days. So yeah, I think people are hungry for science fiction that explores a plausible, hopeful, interesting future for humanity. Lovely. Thank you, Simon, as well for for joining us. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you all so much. No problem. I agree. Thanks. Same to both of you. Thank you. Yeah.